uh, a number of weeks in our Isaiah series, taking a slow walk through chapter 53, and rightly so, looking upon the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ from various angles, uh, drinking deeply, haven't we, of, of the magnificence of his sacrifice and marveling that we gain through what he did, uh, peace with God, our iniquities paid by him. It's incredible. And what we're going to do over the next couple of sermons in the Isaiah series is take us up to chapter 55, which rounds off this section in Isaiah. Uh, 54 and 55 are really chapters that draw out a response, a right response to the servant song of Isaiah 53. In light of the salvation that is ours through this suffering servant, here are some of the things that we should realize. And certainly in 40, uh, where are we? 55, the things that we ought to do, the right response. So let's pray and then we'll read from God's word. Father, your word is living and active. It searches us out. It penetrates deep into our hearts. Lord, search our hearts today. Show us what is in them and show us from your word the glories of the suffering servant again that we may worship him and shout for joy in his name. We ask it. Amen. Isaiah 54, reading from verse 1. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. 
You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far, from, far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Amen. This is God's words. Wow, we should really take five weeks over this one. Anyway, everybody loves a rags to riches story. I hope you do. I do. I love hearing stories where someone's life has been flipped upside down. Uh, I, I've not seen it in years, but I, you know that extreme makeover home edition? Yeah, I would just sob like a baby when I saw that. Kind of, you know, people's lives completely turned around. Hollywood, of course, makes a fortune on stories like this. Maybe I can give you a couple of examples. Uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory has to be one of the best examples of a life flipped upside down. Charlie, this heartbreakingly poor little boy, ends up really having everything he ever dreamed of when Willy Wonka gives him this world-famous chocolate factory as his own. That's a life that's flipped upside down. That is a glorious, glorious turnaround. Cinderella would be another one, of course. Uh, have you seen the new one with Lily James in it? Oh, it's class. You'll love it. It's brilliant. I've got a feeling that someone is going to, at the end of the service, just thrust a manly DVD into my hands. Watch X-Men, please. Uh, anyway, Cinderella. Poor Cinders, broken-hearted at the death of her dad, badly treated by her stepfamily, but she ends up being the princess of the realm when she marries the handsome guy in the blue jacket. They tend to go together. Someone is going to be... We, we love, we love these kinds of stories, these stories of a glorious, glorious turnaround. Stories like these make your heart sing. And to some extent, they illustrate the turnaround that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ makes in our lives. When we believe in him, things change dramatically. The gospel brings about the best rags-to-riches stories ever. But here's what I would say. I don't think the stories that are of the likes of Cinderella and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory are actually go far enough in showing us a glorious turnaround. I think Charlie's and Cinderella's characters and the, the predicaments maybe aren't quite bad enough for them. Like I'm not wishing ill on them. But Charlie, Charlie is adoringly charming, isn't he? He's a lovely boy. Uh, Cinder's humbly serves her wicked stepmother. There's something winsome about those traits in each of them. And there's something about their, if you like, salvation, where we think, yes, they finally got what they deserved. But if you draw that conclusion, you've missed the point of the gospel completely. The gospel shows us that God turns around the lives of those who are neither winsome nor deserving. The turnaround that the gospel brings about, the turnaround that the servant of Isaiah 53, Jesus Christ, brings about for those who believe in him would be better represented by one of the other children in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. 
inheriting the whole thing. Like Veruca Salt, the spoiled brat in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Or maybe if one of the ugly sisters, having mistreated their stepsister, acted abusively towards her. Maybe if Anastasia ended up marrying Prince Charming, we'd have a truer image of the gospel. How it takes those who are utterly, 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 utterly undeserving. And turns everything around for them. I think this is what Isaiah 54 provides for us in terms of a picture. It provides some of the best illustrations of God's amazing grace and the life-changing turnaround that's on offer to all, even today, as a result of the suffering servant's sin-bearing death. So here is the outline for you if you're taking notes. We're going to do it in three parts, one to five. Uh, You're redeemed. And I'll point out the glorious turnaround. 6 to 10, you are loved. And 11 to 17, you are secure. First of all, verses 1 to 5, you are redeemed. What does the text say? Well, let's look at the predicament. Let's look at how God's people are described in this time. Now, I should say, before we launch into all of this, there, there is this There is a sense that what is being spoken of here in Isaiah 54 is... What is going to happen in some form, partially, at the end of the 70-year exile of God's people in Babylon? That's not even happened yet. They're about to be carted off into Babylon at some point in the future. But God is making them promises before that happens to say, stand strong. That won't be the end of you. I'm going to bring you back. But so much, if, the, if not the majority of this passage hangs on the death of the servant so much that even in that we see that it's future focused even beyond the return from exile. It's to do not necessarily with God's people at that time, Israel, but God's people, the church, here and now. Okay? I hope that makes sense. Let's go back to verses 1 to 5. How are God's people described? What is the predicament of those who need a suffering servant to die for them and take their iniquity on himself. Well, they are described in verses 1 to 5 as a barren widow. That's doubly terrible. You see it in verse 1 and in verse 4. It's a painful situation to be in. If in these days you did not have children, you didn't have enough workers in the field, you wouldn't have anyone to look after you when you were old, There was no welfare system at that time. So basically, this childlessness was a threat to you in two main ways. Individually, it was a threat to you in the sense that you'd have no one to look after you. You would would starve to death when you were older. You'd be begging on the streets. But in a wider sense, in terms of God's activity in and through his people, remember in Genesis 12 and 15, he had made a certain promise to Abraham that through him, He's going to have descendants, more more than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. But if they're in exile and they're barren, if they're not able to have children, then that is a big, big threat to the salvation plan of God. Okay? So there's tension in that. There's not only tension in this, the barrenness aspect of it, there's tension in the widowhood aspect of it. Again, this is prophecy text, right? This is metaphorical 
It's, these are images that are thrust before us. Some of them mix, some of them overlap. And it's our work to try and untangle them and figure out what they mean in their context. But they are pictures communicating truth. And if you're a widow, then you are doubly compromised in your hope for the future. And verse 4 makes it clear to us that the situation for God's people back then as a barren widow is, is just really terrible. Because it talks about fear, it talks about disgrace, it talks about humiliation. It's, it's almost like the kind of description that we saw earlier in Isaiah where uh, there was a woman whose husband died young and left her with nothing. Actually, if you want to read a little bit of a story that kind of depicts what's here for us, why don't you read the book of Ruth this afternoon? The book of Ruth is, is heart-wrenching in many ways. Uh, Ruth, in chapter one, her husband died. She was left with nothing but a mother-in-law. Uh, a mother-in-law who was very bitter at that time and who was just saying, look, go away, go and do something else. You're with me, you're gonna die. I've got no hope. I have no one to redeem you, no one to marry, etc. There's no, there's no hope. But even Naomi, that she was destitute, so was Ruth. But what happens? We're meant to feel the hopelessness of that situation. Both for Ruth, as we read the opening chapter, and as we read these opening verses of Isaiah 54. And Isaiah means for that. He wants us to feel the hopelessness of the situation so that we can enjoy the glorious turnaround. He wants us to see the contrast. He wants us to enjoy the contrast that comes as a result of the gospel. What does God do? What does God do for these people who are struggling with fear and disgrace and humiliation? Well, he does a Boaz. <laughs> if you remember Ruth, uh, he gives the widow a husband and creates this incredible turnaround. He redeems the widow by taking her as his own bride. He spreads his wings over his disgraced people and says, I am yours and you are mine. Everything is going to be okay. And that's grace, brothers and sisters. Look with me, verses four to five. There sits the barren widow. You can imagine head in hands, tears rolling down her cheeks. And he takes her by the hand, looks her in the eye and says, don't be afraid, you'll not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace, you'll not be humiliated. You'll forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach, the disappointment of your widowhoods. For your maker is your husband. Wow, your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. Just to be clear who we're talking about here, this is Yahweh, the God of all the earth, belongs to you. He's the one who is loving you, leading you, protecting you, providing for you. He's showing himself to be the perfect, perfect husband to the people of God. And then we see that not only does this barren widow have a husband, this barren one has children. Children, more, than, more children than she who has a husband. Well, what does that mean? I mean, she's going to have so many, in fact, that they will spread out over the whole earth. Both her husband and her fruitfulness gives her reason to feel not disgrace, but joy, not to weep, but to sing. What does it mean? Well, this is talking about the age of the church. 
we see in Galatians chapter 4 that those who believe in Jesus Christ through faith in him and have their sins forgiven are, through faith, children of Abraham. They are accepted under the whole, the covenant love of God, protected, provided for, and it's in this sense, this multiplication of believers. So people who are born not through a womb, but born again through faith in Jesus Christ, they are the ones. They're the spiritual children. They're the spiritual inheritance that will be the fruit, the product, if you like, of the servant's suffering, of his substitutionary sacrifice. Because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, we have the privilege, would you believe, of being, if you like, the progenitors of generations and generations and generations of those who will become part of his family. It's mind-blowing. Because of the servant's work, this worldwide family of God will be added to with children who come through faith in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, when you realize that that kind of thing is what God is doing in and through the servant's work, so that you'll have more people, not in your own family, because that's too small in God's eyes. He cares about those things, but he is thinking on a grand, grand scale. Not so that you'll have more children in your own family, but more spiritual children in heaven, in the new heaven and new earth, to be with you. That's why you see at the start of this passage the call to sing, burst into song. There's this, this news is supposed to be to, to bring about joy in you. The magnitude of this turnaround should make us cry out in praise. I had the song going through my head all this morning. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? <laughs> Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? These are the things that are ought to make us happy and joyful, so that even if we come together with God's people, and we've had a terrible time of it, even the singing of praise among God's people as we reflect on the truth about God and his character left us. Isaiah looks at the sin-bearing servant of the Lord whose death makes all of this possible and says, sing, people of God. Where are your happy hallelujahs? This is amazing. We, we, I don't know, it's a British thing, I think. We have an exaggerated sense of decorum, don't we? <laughs> we're not like David so much who danced before the ark. We're more like Michelle, his wife, said, oh, David, just calm down. That's the Scottish translation. But seriously, if we, if, but seriously, get this, right? If we are not going to hell anymore... If your sins are forgiven, think about what you've done in a flash, 10 seconds. There are all the reasons why you did not deserve his love and yet in grace he showers it upon you. And that's why we sing hallelujah, praise the Lord. Amen? Well, that was decent. 
But the fact that we get to have spiritual children. So we as a church, the application of this is not just as a church family, be joyful. Rejoice at this and sing your hearts out. It's spread the words. This is a cry of love that needs to cry out across all the lands. I love the picture that C.S. Lewis paints of this in in his book, The Great Divorce. It's a fictional story about a man who goes to heaven. He's shown around by a guide. Now, I think this might be really important because I recognize recognize with pastoral sensitivity some of you who have struggled to have children. For some, it's not been possible. For some, you're still struggling. Uh, This text is in no means saying that that's a fault of your sin. That would be to misunderstand this text completely. So don't go away thinking that. But one of the things that this passage does say to us all is of the va- it presses home the value of a spiritual inheritance, spiritual children. And C.S. Lewis writes, in, as part of this book, he says, he's there in heaven, being shown around by a guide. There's a woman who comes around the corner, and she is gorgeous. And she's surrounded by people who are dancing around her and loving her. She is, as Lewis describes, filled with light. He said, I only partly remember the unbearable beauty of her face. And he says, is it, is it, is it? And he's trying to think of who it is. And the guy says, not at all. You never knew her. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith. She lived at Golders Green. But she seems to have been a person of great importance, he says. Have you not heard, said the guide, that fame on earth and fame up here are two very different things? Well, I said, who are these people on each side of her? Her sons and daughters, he said. Well, she must have had a very large family. No, said the guide. Every boy who met her became her son, every girl her daughter. Wasn't that hard on their parents, I said. No, said the guide. There are those who steal other children's parents, but this was a different kind. Those on whom it fell, her love, went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Few who became her sons and daughters looked on her without loving her, but it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives, truer to their own parents truer to their own children, and now the abundance of the life that she has in Christ from the Father flows into them. And already, Lewis writes, there is more joy in her little finger than is necessary to waken the dead things of this universe to life. That's what it means to have spiritual children and an inheritance from the Lord that Paul calls in 1 Thessalonians your joy and your crown. So whether we're unmarried or married, whether we have children or not, if we share the love and the grace that's ours through Christ, if we recognize that we are married to God, that the maker is our husband, then we're going to create a family that's way more important than passing on our genes or even cuddling a little one of our own. We can all be fruitful in a way that will matter most in eternity when we make disciples. Brothers and sisters, We have a gospel to share. Isaiah 53 is not given to us. The gospel that we find in Isaiah 53 is not given to us just to sing and exult in. It's given to share. Number two, verses six to 10, you are loved. 
What does the text say? How are God's people described again in verses 6 to 10? Well, in verses 6 to 10, the, the people of God are almost, they're described like an unfaithful wife. Again, this is very common in Isaiah. Um, it's used to tell us something about God's people back then, the reason why they ended up in exile. So the picture that we have throughout the Old Testament and in the book of Isaiah in particular, is that God is like a husband who loves and cares for his wife, but she puts herself in the arms of other lovers. She's cheating. She's worshipped other gods and committed spiritual adultery. In Isaiah 1.21, just to give you one example, God says that the faithful city of Jerusalem had actually, because of her idolatry, sunk to the level of a prostitute. And that's why God's people are in exile. We've seen that. And that's why you see in this passage between 6 and 10, these hints at what God has done. So it says that he has hid his face from them, that there has been withdrawal. It says that he is angry with them. And he's just in his anger, of course. It's perfectly warranted. They have not kept their side of the covenant that has been made, particularly at Sinai with Moses but I want you to notice the temporary nature of these things. You've got to understand the contrast again. So they are not only like barren widows, they're like an unfaithful, adulterous wife. But what does God do? What does God do? And remember, this is all on account of the servant's work in Isaiah 53. What does his atoning work achieve? What does it make possible? Well, it makes possible the joy of restoration. It says in verse 6, The Lord will call you back as a wife des deserted and distressed in spirit. He looks on his bride. He recognizes the fact that she is distressed. But he doesn't say, I see your distress. Good. No. Though her distress is her own doing, it moves him you cannot get away from the fact that the word compassion is repeated in this passage. He is moved in his heart, in all that he is, to move towards this undeserving person and restore them in love. It really is an extension of what we saw in verse 5 about him saying that he is the husband to these people. So as a result of the servant's work, what we find is that he restores his people in love. Again, the temporary nature of his anger is there for us. It's, it's verse 7, for a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face for you for how long? For a moment. But what kind of kindness is he going to show? Everlasting. That's the covenant love of God. Unbreakable. Look down at verse 10. He's saying, though the mountains may shake and the hills be removed, yet one thing is going to stand. Nothing is going to move this. You can move mountains, but nothing can move this. My unfailing love for you will not be shaken. My covenant of peace, my promise to you as a husband to a wife, will not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. What deep, deep love. What unbelievable grace. 
This is God's riches at Christ's expense. This is God showing us unmerited favor, not on account of anything that we have done, but on account of the work of the servant of Isaiah 53, on account of Jesus himself. How is it possible? It's because the judgment that was due for all the sinfulness of humankind was placed not on them to cement them in their judgment, to make it a permanent judgment, but it was placed on Jesus. They're not forsaken. And the reason is because Jesus was forsaken on the cross. God's wrath, God's just anger against sin was poured out upon him. I used to play with magnifying glasses when I was younger. It was a fairly cruel affair. You know, you can burn things, scold patterns into trees, scare the living daylights out of other children. You can take a magnifying glass and concentrate the rays of the sun into this sharp point of intensity so that it actually burns things. It's cool to a little boy. But imagine you could have a massive moral magnifying glass and through it blazes not the sun's powerful rays but the righteous judgment of God on all of our wrongdoing. It burns with intensity, not on the person who deserved it. It actually burns with intensity on the only one who lived a sinless life, the one who definitely did not deserve it. God's wrath burns with intensity on the sun so that those who believe in the sun might be free, might have their sins forgiven, might have his righteous life credited by grace to their account. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. I wonder if you've ever realized that. Whenever it comes to God things, lots of people in our world, I thought this before I became a Christian, it was all about dusting yourself down, making yourself clean. If ever God was going to accept me, then I really needed to, I really needed to sort out my life, be a lot cleaner, be a lot, be good. Be kind to people. But that's a lie. I wonder if you realize that from all that we've been talking about so far, the only thing, the only thing that makes it possible for you to be made right in God's eyes and to have a place under his wings as his child and a part in his plan on mission for him is to receive his gift, his grace. It is incredible. If you're new to it, it can be hard to grasp. If so, why don't you ask the person next to you or grab me after the service. I'll be at the door afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about it. There'll be people down the front who'd be willing to pray with you about that. Actually, you could ask one of them. God's grace is glorious. It's our salvation, our rescue from sin, being made right with him is a gift from him. So it cannot be earned. And it's all possible because God's just judgment, his wrath, his anger was poured out on him, Jesus Christ, who was the one who was forsaken in our place. Now, for those of us who are believers, I think we need to hear this message again and again and again, the fact that we are loved by God this much. Do you not think so? 
I think some of us really, I struggle with this myself at times, I think we struggle with a petal theology when it comes to the gospel. You know that childish game when you've got a little petal, a little flower thing, and you, you, know, you pick it up and you, you fancy someone or something, you go, he loves me, he loves me not, she loves me, she loves, you know, I think we do that with God's love. I think we sometimes wonder that because of the things that we do, the mistakes that we make, the ways in which we fall short of a standard, we see him say, bear with one another in love, and then actually we're quite grumpy at other people. We hear him say, in your anger, do not sin, and yet we get angry and irritable at some of the smallest, most stupidest things. And then what happens then? We experience guilt and shame in that moment, and we can step back from God. We start to withdraw a little bit and think, you know, I might not go to church today. I might not pray to him today. I might not read the Bible today because I'm feeling pretty rubbish, and I really don't think God would accept me. That's petal theology, and it's just not the gospel. God accepts you on account of his son. And we're invited to enjoy his grace. Again and again and again, because God's love for us is not conditioned by our performance, but by his covenant and by his nature and by his son. And he's promised us it's perfect. And he says... His unfailing love for us will not be shaken, nor his covenant of peace removed. So brother or sister, if you're struggling with guilt or shame, and it's really crippling your heart, uh, please come and pray with people after the service. Talk to them about it. Talk to one of us. Talk to the person that you came with. Maybe someone in your growth group. One of the key things that we must do is help each other apply the gospel to our daily lives that we might live it out with greater joy. Thirdly, very quickly, you're secure. This text tells us that God's people are described as those who are afflicted, like a city afflicted, lashed by storms. The whole idea that is in this last part of the passage is that there is no protection for them. Again, what does the work of the servant of Isaiah 53 achieve for God's people? Well, it achieves security and safety. We are, in a sense, beautified and made safe. So it says that God himself is the one who rebuilds us. And again, well, again, some might say, is this referring to the fact that they go back from exile and they start to rebuild the temple again and so on? Well, it can't be because that temple certainly didn't look like this. No, this is pointing forward. And again, it's pointing beyond the death of the servant. It's as a result of the servant that God's people will inherit a beautiful inheritance. The kind of city that Hebrews 11 makes us long for. The perfect city of God. Where sin and suffering is removed. Where Jesus Christ, the Lamb, is also the light of that city. Where in the new heaven and new earth, we have joy forevermore. The way we enjoy that beauty at the removal of sin and the way we enjoy that safety at the removal of all that might tyrannize or 
or make us scared or threaten us. We will be those. The thing that gets us there is to be taught by the Lord, which is what verse 13 talks about. All your children will be taught by the Lord and great will be their peace. This is a passage that Jesus himself quoted in John 6. In order to reaffirm to everybody who would hear him, he said that if you have heard me teach you, you've heard the Father. So we who listen to Jesus are those who are taught by the Lord. And those who are taught by the Lord and accept what he says is true will find ourselves to be redeemed by him. We'll find ourselves to be loved by him. We'll find ourselves to be secure in him because we understand his grace. We love his love and we put our trust in him. I pray that we would enjoy the gospel. Enjoy the work of the servant who died on our behalf to redeem us, to show us his love, and to keep us safe. Let's pray together. Lord, what a glorious turnaround you have brought about in our lives we who were hell-deserving sinners, uh, lost without you, at enmity with you, have been reconciled to you through the blood of your Son. You've set your love upon us, and we love you for that. We thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for his love. Thank you for the grace of the gospel that he was Uh, put to death so that we might live, that you laid on him the iniquity of us all so that we might have the joy of this salvation, the freedom of forgiveness, freedom from guilt and shame, and the promise of life everlasting in his name. Oh, how we praise you and thank you for this. Give us grace as we go from here, not only to enjoy this love and sing about it, but to share it with others. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.